Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We're excited to announce that we will now be releasing these episodes every week on Wednesday morning. The best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you listen. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via the Venmo app by sending your donation to at WildHeartNashville, or you can go to WildHeartMeditationCenter.org and click the Donate tab. We also want to announce an upcoming residential retreat, which will be happening in May in North Carolina, May 24th to May 31st. You can find out more information about this retreat at heartwoodrefuge.org. Thanks for listening. So I thought I'd take us to church a little bit today and talk about this uh, topic of obstacles are the path. Obstacles are the path and really a reflection on the five hindrances. So it's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. You know, as I was thinking about um, the, the talk today, I was just reading some of the Buddha's discourses and reflecting on my early practice. And I was thinking about just how fucking repetitive the Buddha's teachings are. You know, the Buddha was all about repetition, whether it's, you know, for us reading one of these suttas or even in the meditation practice, the heart practices and saying the phrases is, sometimes can feel like Dharma detention, you know, like Bart Simpson at the beginning of The Simpsons writing the same sentence on the blackboard over and over again. But for us, it's like, may I be at ease? May I be at peace? May I be happy? May I be free? You know, and our, our practice can sometimes feel a little bit like a chore. It's so, it's so, um, it's really so simple. And we never really graduate. There's not really an advanced um, practice. And for me, early on in my practice, I'd spent so much time estranged from my own heart that I felt like I, I didn't deserve my own love. Um, but I, at that point, when I came into the Dharma, I'd also equally spent so much of my life estranged from my own heart that I realized I also didn't deserve that either. And so I was in this kind of like Dharma purgatory where I felt like I had left one shore, like I knew that something needed to change, that I was no longer deserving of uh, so much disconnection from myself, but I didn't yet know that I deserved my own love. I knew that I couldn't hate myself into being a better person anymore, you know, but I hadn't yet decided to try to love myself into recognizing the person that I truly am, or as in what they call in Tibetan Buddhism, our Buddha nature. You know, so this repetition of the Buddha's teaching and this practice really served a purpose for me because for me, these habits of self-hatred were so insidious and so well-practiced and even inherited in a lot of ways. You know, I needed something repetitive, something consistent, something stable, like the practice and like my teachers and my community to help steady my mind, you know, something to come back to, something to take refuge in. And early on, it didn't feel genuine, you know, and I always talk about the myth of authenticity is that like what we're doing on some level is training the heart and the mind. You know, and so it, it didn't feel like I connected to the heart practices or this idea of 
uh, metta of loving kindness towards myself. Um, but I knew that what I had been doing all along wasn't working. And so I knew that this was at least different. And I did have some trust in the teachers and some trust in the teachings. You know, parts of them spoke to me. And they say when you come to the Dharma, you kind of enter through one of two doors. There's the wisdom door or the heart door. And I wanted to enter through the wisdom door and I wanted to have nothing to do with the heart door. <laughs> you know? So the heart practice on the retreats that I went and sat, they usually do it in the afternoon and I would always skip that session. I'd try to talk myself out of it. And so the repetition served a purpose for me because it helped me to really um, look at my resistance to certain parts of the teaching. And over time, without forcing myself into them, um, it opened my mind to maybe other ways of engaging with these parts of me you know, that had been longing to be loved and longing to be included in my practice. So the repetition of the practice gave me something to do. It gave me something that was different. It was the cultivation of wisdom and compassion, you know, to see clearly and to respond wisely. Mindfulness started to help me see some of the mind habits more clearly. It helped me to step back and to uh, let these thoughts, these critical thoughts, these incessant plans, obsessive thoughts, to let them die a natural death, to to learn how to get distance from the thinking mind. But more importantly, mindfulness helped me to meet each of these moments, these passing moments with more care and concern, with less judgment, you know, to really soften and view these apparent obstacles of self-criticism and uh, self-hatred as actually my only true path to liberation. It was through my relationship with my self-hating mind that I found the transformation. And I'm still a work in progress, you know, but as I look back, these things that appear as obstacles are actually doorways to liberation. They are the path. They're not getting in the way of the meditation. They are the meditation. And so whenever I always joke with my teacher, Dave, when you know, you teach a meditation class, you usually learn that the one question you always get is how can I change this part of my experience? Or how can I fix this part of my experience? And still to this day, these are the questions I bring to him. You know, how can I change this part of my experience? How can I fix this part of my experience? And it's always the reminder, the repetitive reminder that I'm being asked to meet that part of my experience, not change it. I'm being asked to investigate that part of my experience, not change it. To seek to understand that part of my experience. The habits of the mind are powerful, you know, but they're also our greatest teachers. They illuminate the places where healing is needed the most. You know, that they're the two parts of our experience, what's loved and what's longing to be loved. And the challenges in our life are the places where we learn to meet and stretch our capacity to open to what's longing to be loved. As I continued to study and practice, I learned about the five hindrances, these five frequent mental habits that would be a consistent companion to me on my path. And five of my greatest teachers 
Over the course of my practice, I can't tell you how many times I found myself tangled up in the hindrances. You know, and usually it manifests first by noticing some outward behavior. You know, have you ever found yourself in a familiar cycle of habit? Asking yourself, how did I get here again? How did I get here again? You know, I even watched this today as I recently um, took a break from caffeine. And I got up early this morning. I didn't sleep well. And uh, I got a very small coffee. And I drank half of it. And I noticed my arm just going to it like, I'm going to just chug this thing. And it's like, that's how these outward habits kind of start, right? Is these like little movements of the mind for more, more, more. So sometimes it's even... It's uh, not always dramatic, you know, it's often mind-made, these mental habits. How many times has my mind convinced me to take another dance with a habit that no longer serves me? You know, to throw myself back into work and to bury myself in my schedule again, or to stay up 30 minutes later and then an hour later and then sleep 30 minutes later and an hour later. And it's not about the perfect schedule, which we're obsessed with in the West, you know, this like hyper-perfectionistic, like routine building, productive, you know, mindset that we get into. It's not about the thing, it's about the relationship to the thing, the mental habit that's operating underneath the surface of the thing. So somewhere underneath all of these physical habits we find ourselves in is something more subtle that's operating at the level of the mind. And this is where the Buddha really focuses his teaching. Not only do we pick back up tumultuous behavior patterns over and over again, but usually preceding those behaviors is slipping into some type of mental reactivity. And so the Buddha just asks us to check it out. You know, that is there a link between the karma of one's mind and the karma of one's actions and behavior? Something that's really interested me over the years and I'm not um, excluded from is as a therapist seeing so many people that come into my office and already know what they need to do to change. They already know what they want to do to change, but they struggle in changing. And so that tells me it's not a matter of uh, rational thought or intellect, you know, it's a matter of something deeper that's happening in the mind. Some ways that we resist change because of what? Because of fear, you know, because of a sense craving, because of aversion, because of lethargy, because of restlessness, because of doubt. Those are the five hindrances. Here's some repetition. The Dhammapada, something I quoted a couple weeks ago, the Buddha says, All phenomena are preceded by the mind, ruled by the mind, made of the mind. If you speak or act with a corrupted mind, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart follows the track of the ox that pulls it. So it's clear to me, over time, it's become clear to me that I act in the world based upon how I perceive the world. And that my perception is filtered through feelings and mind states that are temporary. And how I feel is not a good indication of how I'm doing, but I react to life based upon feeling so much of the time. I react to evaluating myself based upon how I'm feeling. 
I react to my insecurities out there in the world and relationships and uh, being dismissive or being argumentative based upon my insecurities because of how I'm feeling. And so mind states and feelings are really important to examine, you know, because they really are the, uh, the crossroads where a lot of our reactivity arises from. So when I talk about the five hindrances, I'm really viewing them as these five great teachers, these, these intimate parts of our experience, these frequent visitors to the mind that we can, we can choose to have a, a relationship with. In the ancient teachings on the five hindrances, the word for hindrance is niwarana, which means covering. In some forms of Buddhism, they say that the natural state of the mind is radiant and peaceful. Even in Theravadan Buddhism, this earliest form of Buddhism, the metaphor that the Buddha himself uses to describe the mind is as a clear bowl of water. This is kind of hearkening to what Ajahn Chah says about the mind being like a still forest pool. But with mindfulness, our job is to watch all of these strange and wonderful creatures come and drink from the pool. All of these mental uh, movements of agitation, all of these hindrances that arise and pass through the peaceful mind. And so the way that the Buddha talks about the hindrances is these kind of coverings or these things that affect the mind, its natural radiance and peace. And I like the way he describes, the, describes them in the metaphor because it gives us a visual image of what these mind states do to the natural state of the mind. So the first hindrance is sensual desire, which I'll talk about in a moment. But the way that the Buddha describes this in the metaphor, it's like a clear bowl of water that has been colored with dye. So, you know, we've talked about in our uh, popular... A cliche of the rose-colored glasses, right? Always seeking to have something different or that our happiness is in some other moment, in some other experience. So it's water that's been co colored with dye. It's affecting how we see in the lens in which we view our world. Aversion and ill will is water that has come to a boil. Lethargy is water that has been covered in algae and has moss growing through it. Restlessness and worry is water that's stirred around by the wind. And doubt is murky or dirty water. So these are the five coverings. They're these strange and wonderful creatures that come and visit the mind. And I think a big part of our practice is to become intimate with them. So obstacles as the path. Before I get into the hindrances, I just want to offer a couple disclaimers about this teaching, that these are opportunities rather than getting in the way of our meditation practice. The first disclaimer is the difference between discernment and judgment. Joseph Goldstein says, in our Western culture, it's a very delicate process. For many people, it's an easy step from recognizing a particular mind state like sense desire or aversion as being unwholesome to then jumping to the feeling that you're a bad person for having it or that somehow it's wrong for the mind state to even arise. 
This pattern of reaction simply leads to more self-judgment, more aversion, and more suffering, and it's not a helpful cycle. So discernment is looking at something at face value, saying greed is present in the mind, craving is present in the mind, aversion is present in the mind, and giving it the time of day, you know, allowing it, inviting it to be here with curiosity before we investigate it. Discernment has a level of investigation where judgment is usually overly identifying with the mind state as good or bad or that it should or shouldn't be here. And this is tricky, and this is a big part of the practice over time is, you know, to practice kind of stepping back from attributing an identity or a label of right or wrong to anything that's happening in our experience. One thing that's been helpful for this is learning a little bit about Paul Ekman's research on emotions and how they've linked all of our core emotions to our biology. The same emotions exist whether you're born in a remote tribe or whether you live in the most densely populated area of this world. And so they know that they're not culturally bound, they're bound by our biology. And so anger is as natural as the air we breathe. Fear is as natural as the air we breathe. These mind states are natural, but they're not always constructive. And mindfulness helps us to be skillful or constructive within these mind states. So we need to not judge them for happening, but we need to learn how to have enough of a relationship to, with them that we can be constructive. When I first started to practice, I would notice that whenever the, one of these mind states were present, there would be this instance of contraction, a tensing and tightening that would happen in my body. A part of this is because of what I made their presence mean to me, what I made the presence of the hindrances mean to me, that I hadn't made it anywhere on the path, or that maybe they meant something about how good or bad of a Dharma practitioner I was. So when I would hear the Dharma talk on aversion being a cause of suffering, and aversion would rise in my mind, I would think, bad Buddhist. And I wouldn't even necessarily have the thought, but my body would have this sense of, this shouldn't be here, this shouldn't be happening. And it gets even worse as you practice longer. Because now it's the mind has this opportunity to say 10 years, six months of your life spent in silence. Man, you should just give up, throw in the towel. Your mind is not calm, it's not clear, it's not any of these things that it's supposed to be. Fortunately, a little bit of practice will help you see, oh, delusion is present in the mind. Delusion's the hardest mind state to see because it convinces us that it's wisdom, right? So the body is actually a really great, simple way to identify when there's some type of judgment that's forming around the hindrances. If the body's contracting or tensing when we notice ourselves agitated or angry or upset, we can start to soften and just notice that that emotion or that mind state's present. Over time, I started to see how as I open up to the experience of the hindrances and soften around them and become really curious about them, I also open up to understanding them better. And it is understanding that the Buddha says leads to liberating insight. 
The word for this in Pali Sanskrit is parinya, and parinya means to know. But it means to know something like you know someone intimately. It doesn't mean to know something like you memorized a math equation in a book. And we try to get at the Dharma like that, don't we? Like, oh, I know aversion equals suffering, so don't be aversive, right? Not that easy. To know something, to know aversion, is to really be intimate with it so we can understand it. And we understand it in a couple ways. You know, what hindrance is present in the mind right now? We know it just in that simple awareness. We know it in this causal awareness of what led to the arising of the hindrance. Oh, well, I was just driving down the road, playing out every resentment in my mind. That's why I feel angry. Okay. <laughs> what is perpetuating or sustaining the hindrance? Oh, well, I hopped on the phone and just shit-talked my friend for 30 minutes with my other friend. Oh, okay. What is a creative way to engage with the hindrance? Let's see, you know, what it would it be like to pause, to go on a walk, to do some forgiveness meditation, skillful ways of meeting the hindrance. So when we say understanding is the way in which we cultivate liberating insight, we mean to know something that intimately. It's like a mechanic. The mechanic has expectations that their job will always be about understanding problems. You don't bring your car to a mechanic because your car is doing great and you just want to show them, hey man, the work you did six months ago, still fucking working, right? You bring your car to the mechanic because something's wrong. The meditator will come to expect that their job will always be about understanding problems, like a mechanic. The more the mechanic investigates these problems, the more they understand, the more they understand, the better they are at repairing problems. The more the meditator investigates these problems, the more they will understand, the more they understand, the better they are at repairing problems. I really think mindfulness is a superpower. We can look into the mind and actually become aware of our own mental environment. That's pretty amazing. We have this ability for metacognition. You know, we can think about thinking or observe thinking. It interrupts the trance of the mind state when we do that because it shines the light back on the mind itself. The Buddha says simply, to know a greedy mind is a greedy mind, and a mind without greed to be a mind without greed. To know an angry mind is an angry mind, and a mind without anger to be a mind without. And he goes on with all of the hindrances, that our only practice is to know that the mind state is present or absent. He doesn't say in his instructions to get rid of it. He says to just know it. And then we can investigate. Is it present or is it absent? What led to the arising of it? What's perpetuating or fueling it? And what's a creative way to engage with it? So these five hindrances, I'm much more interested with how we work with them and not how we get rid of them. I'll go through these real quick. Sense desire is the water that has the colored dye. Sense desire is the mind state that wants the experience to be different. A pivotal moment where the mind separates us from what's happening in the present. When we get so caught up in anticipating a plan or so excited and enticed by something that's not happening right now, we actually separate ourselves or disembody ourselves from what's here. 
And whenever we're disembodied, there's suffering. The mind is so focused on improving the moment with something else, of acquiring something or attaining something or getting something else, that it cannot rest content until this moment changes. So desire is not the problem. It's just that if we don't watch it, it gets contracted into idealization or craving or identification. So desire becomes essentialized, like it becomes a need. It's an insatiable longing to satisfy. When we're moving, uh, when my wife and I were moving into our new house, I started to bank on the new house being the turning point for my whole life. Right? I started to imagine myself in a, a different place where like pain didn't exist. It's like, you know what, I think I'll take up jogging. You know, I think I'll, uh, I'll get to know all my neighbors. I'll be this really great social guy, you know? <laughs> and it's like, right? Desire is not the problem, but it's kind of this way in which my fantasy disembodied me from the present moment. I'll be happy when is what ends up happening. And then I postpone my happiness for some other fantasy of the future that in my version of it doesn't include pain or discomfort most of the time. So we have to distinguish pleasure from sensual pleasure because there's a difference. And I think we know the difference. We get this question a lot like, but Andrew, I have things that I want. Is it bad to have things that I want? I think the difference is that there's a pleasure that never satisfies and there's a pleasure that has an ability to satisfy, right? And again, this is subtle, but one start starting place to notice the difference is a moment of uh, non-attached appreciation to pleasure usually feels a lot more relaxed. You know, when there's this insatiable thirst or craving around pleasure, I can feel it in my body and my breath. I feel my breath get shallow. I feel my body tighten up. An insight I've had around the difference between desire and craving is that most of the joy of fulfilling a desire is not that you get the thing that you want, it's that the wanting has stopped. And so I'll say that again because I found this to be true, is that most of the joy that I've actually gotten in the pleasurable things in my life doesn't come from the thing. It comes from the stopping of the wanting or the needing of the thing. It comes from the true enjoyment of being with the thing in the moment as it exists in all of its temporariness. Being in the moment of the vacation instead of thinking about how many hours I have left till I have to go back to work, right? The wanting has ceased in those moments where I actually delight and enjoy the moment in the vacation. It's about being present. So sense desire is this craving, the fever of unsatisfied longing. And we can find it in our meditation practice as anticipation or as planning or as fantasizing, anything that takes us out of the moment. The practice here is a continual inquiry. With mindfulness, we can just name it. This is wanting, this is craving. We can notice the contraction in the body and we can start to soften around it. We can be curious to notice what led to its arising. A lot of times the things that I want and the things that I have this incessant desire for in my life, they come out of something else, like a loneliness, you know, or uh, insecurity or a fear. 
The second is aversion and ill will. This is the boiling water. And this is basically the same as craving, but instead of craving for something, it's craving for something to go away. I think that avoidance is really at the bottom of all of the hindrances. In this case, not wanting is kind of the other side of the coin of craving. It's this automatic impulse or habit of the mind to dismiss, to avoid, to resist, to become irritable, angry, and resentful in the face of unwanted experiences of pain, of perceived failure, perceived disrespect, perceived criticism. So a pro tip here is when mental agitation is present, we may be using mindfulness as a technique to try to get rid of the unpleasant experience by meditating it away. So sometimes we try to use meditation as a way to actually be aversive, to get rid of the discomfort, to get rid of the disease or the awkwardness that we feel. Meditation is not a good get rid of strategy. As my teacher used to always tell me, Andrew, you can't outsmart suffering. And my attempts to do so were just merely aversion at every turn. How can I preemptively make sure that I don't experience pain in the next moment? <laughs> How can I get rid of pain in this moment? Aversion, aversion, aversion. And we can't use aversion to help soothe aversion or to help us understand aversion. We actually have to use a willingness to be completely intimate and present with it, to say this is aversion, to be curious what's led to the arising of the aversion, what's perpetuating or fueling the aversion, and what are some creative ways to engage with it. They call anger in the Buddhist discourses the honey-tipped dart because it usually feels very motivating and energizing. And Paul Ekman says this is the evolutionary uh, purpose of anger is it's the remover of obstacles so when we're really engaged with our anger in an unwise way we feel really self-righteous and it gives us this fuel of pleasure of empowerment and what happens is if we react we often feel the secondary emotion of regret so sometimes aversion and regret can go really hand in hand, especially if we pop off at the mouth and cause some uh, you know, conflict in our lives, some destructiveness in our lives. But anger alone is not a problem. It's just an emotion that's an indicator that some threat has been sensed. But is this threat wise? Is the threat real? Sometimes we got to ask ourselves that. And maybe it is, and if it is, then what's a really constructive way to engage with the threat, to use the anger to turn it into a motivation to do something good for the world instead of something destructive in the face of the world? And I think that takes courage. I'll put a lethargy and restlessness together. Lethargy is this kind of a lack of driving power or a reluctance to work to make an effort. Traditionally, the word for this is sloth, which is the sunken feeling of lethargy. It's that kind of hard to get up and go. Sloth is that like hitting the snooze button on the alarm five or ten times. Torpor, which is the traditional word for this other part of lethargy, is a sluggishness of mental factors. It's like it's hard to pay attention. It's hard to stay curious. 
So sloth is like it's hard to get up and get motivated, and torpor is like I have a dull mind and it's hard to stay attentive. The mind has two functions, you might say. It has a doing function and a knowing function. The role of meditation is to calm the doing function while maintaining the knowing function. Sleepiness occurs when we carelessly or mindlessly calm both the doing and the knowing function. So in meditation, we start to lean into the calmness and tranquility of the meditation. And we need to employ curiosity to help that knowing and that attentiveness and that curiosity to stay present. Lethargy is going to be a frequent visitor. You know, we've worked with it in a lot of ways. First, we soften our resistance to it. Being sleepy feels actually quite pleasant a lot of the times. But when we resist it because we feel the need to be productive, we usually make ourselves more fatigued by ignoring our sleepiness, our lethargy. So sometimes good old-fashioned rest and awareness that we're tired will help us to balance out. Sometimes lethargy is an avoidance strategy, a defense mechanism of the mind. I've asked myself on meditation retreats before, if I wasn't tired right now, what would I be feeling? And that's been interesting to me because I've started to see when sleepiness is that kind of let's stay in bed and let's put on the Netflix and let's you know, kind of disengage from maybe a feeling I don't want to be with right now. And the reason why this has been a danger for me is that you put a few of those days together and it can turn into depression really quick for me. You know, so being aware of lethargy and fatigue can be really helpful if we're curious about it. If I wasn't tired right now, what would I be feeling? Oh, there's some loneliness or I feel isolated. I feel disconnected. I have anxiety about going around people. And then we can work with what's really there sometimes. Restlessness and worry. Restlessness is this agitation or overexcitement, distractibility of mind. Worry is this rumination, this habit of the mind to completely focus attention on the symptoms of our distress, constantly mulling over and over again, the what-ifs, right? Restlessness works in that language a lot of the time. What if this happened? What if that happened? Or why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why do I feel this way? Whys and whats don't usually get me as far as hows. How is this? How is this? Right now it's like this. How is this? How is it now? How is it to be with it? How is it in the body? How is it in the mind? Three levels of restlessness and worry. There's the physical body sensation. We might call that anxiety. There's the speed of the mind. We might call that rumination or proliferation. And then there's the uh, content of the thoughts. In meditation, we can do different forms of meditation to work with restlessness. Sitting meditation is not always the most useful when your mind's been agitated for 5 or 10 or 15 minutes. Doing walking meditation or even just opening the eyes, sometimes laying down. Sometimes stopping trying to do a technique during meditation can be really helpful when restless. Actually, as a rule of thumb, anytime my mind's restless, I don't listen to the Dharma teacher with the technique, with the instructions. I do what's called a pile of meat practice. Sitting, know that you're sitting. Soften the body around the, the restlessness. Open the eyes. Maybe go on a walk, you know. 
doubt the murky or dirty water. This is the most formidable of the Buddha's opponents on his quest for enlightenment. And doubt continued to visit the Buddha even right after his enlightenment. He was walking, a fully enlightened being, and Mara came back to visit the Buddha and said, how would you even teach and who would you teach to and should you even teach? People won't believe you. It's been so hard. It goes against the stream. No one will be able to do this. And the Buddha gave in to the doubt and one person walked up to him and said, hey, you look radiant and have all this vitality and aliveness to you. Who are you? What is your teaching? And he said, I'm fully enlightened. And the person said, okay, cool, dude, and went away. And then the Buddha learned, I'm going to have to be more patient. I'm going to have to be more skillful in how I teach and connect more with people in how I teach. So doubt is one of our, the most formidable of our opponents. And there are two types of doubt. There's investigative doubt, which is a helpful type of doubt, which is like a questioning and investigative quality of mind that assists us in dropping our fixed views or beliefs or automatic assumptions. This kind of self-doubt that says, how do you know that you're right about that person or that place or that thing or that experience? It's that kind of investigative doubt. I don't have all the answers, right? I want to look into the mind. The hindrance of skeptical doubt is different, though. It's a deluded or confused state of mind that's overcome by perplexity and indecision. Perplexity is an entangled or disoriented state that comes from feeling unable to understand or deal with something. Right, And a doubt often arises in our inability to be with the unknown. Needless to say, over the course of our lives, we go through so much transition. Our identities change, you know, our jobs change, our relationships change, and it can oftentimes create this sense of instability and insecurity. And the mind doesn't like to not know where it's going or what it's going to be doing. And so this skeptical doubt arises where we start to feel like it is us who are lost when it's really a groundless experience that we're in. And so having support, having wise friends, the Buddha said, is helpful for working with doubt. Even just recognizing it as doubt can be really helpful. I was on a retreat in Myanmar for a month, and they teach this very rigid form of noting practice where they tell you if a mind state, like one of the hindrances arises, just note it in your mind as doubt, doubt, doubt. And one day I was used to these Western retreats, so I went into my, uh, my Sayadaw, my teacher, and I sat down in front of him, and he said, how's practice? And I said, well, it's really good, but I don't know if I can do 16 hours a day. I'm missing home. I don't know if the practice is working. I keep trying the practice, but I feel more and more agitated. I don't think I'm doing it right. And he said, stop, 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 stop. And he said, doubt 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 and it was so helpful to have someone just point out the mind state that was present i didn't have to have a story about it he didn't have to kind of believe you know well i need to encourage you or inspire you he was just like just see the doubt in your mind it's just a mind state so noting it helps devotional practice helps right and i don't mean necessarily devotion something you don't believe in 
but a reflection of devotion and things that have worked for you in times past. Who are the lineage of people that have supported you? Who are your dear friends? You know, what are the practices or the self-care activities or things that have gotten you out of it before? To lean on those, those are helpful during times of transition. Last thing I wanna share is a quote from Ajahn Sachito on wise investigation. He says, being honest about our reactive habits, our shortcomings and our stubbornness leads to us to inquire as to what keeps us bound to these unsatisfactory ways of operating. And with that sense of inquiry or interest, as we step back from engaging in the reactions and just look into them rather than condemning or justifying them, we find some intimate wisdom, clarity and light. We know there is no point in operating through these forms of reactivity because that either supports the wall that we build against life or keeps us running on automatic. However, every time we step back and review ourselves, there is a steady, this is how it is kind of wisdom. A way of seeing that lessens how personally we take our shortcomings. After all, there's nothing so uniquely me about having a personality with its faults and limitations. This is everyone's work. In this way, these two functions of meditation, the ability to step back and the ability to look into the experience intimately, go together and support each other. These are some of my thoughts on obstacles as the path and the five hindrances. We've got plenty of time. I would love to hear from y'all. 